0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at WhitefieldsChurch.com. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 6. Let's begin by reading our text starting in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we're excited to study it this morning. Lord, we ask that as we open your word and we consider these things, Lord, would you give us spiritual insight? Would you give us practical insight? Lord, we pray that our hearts, our minds, our lives would be affected and changed. Lord, that we would not only be hearers, but we would be doers of your word. Lord, would you work in us this morning as we take in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me begin with a question this week. What do you have to do if you're a Christian, right? Like, you probably thought about this. What do you have to do if you're a Christian? So let's let's go through some ideas. Do you have to keep the Ten Commandments? If you're a Christian, do you have to keep the Ten Commandments? Do you have to go to church? I mean, you're here right now, but do you have to go to church? Do you have to read the Bible and pray? Do you have to listen to Christian music? You could go down the line. Now, Now, we left off last week with this verse, chapter six, verse 14. Here's what it says. You are not under law, but under grace. So you're not under law, but under grace. So, but what does that mean? What are the implications of that fact that we're no longer under law, but under grace? Does that mean that we can now disregard the commandments and the laws and the rules that are found in the Bible? What about the 10 commandments? Uh, So for example, if we're not under the law, but under grace, does that mean that we don't have to keep the 10 commandments anymore? So let's just think about the 10 commandments, right? Does that mean that, for example, the 10 commandments say don't lie? Does that mean that if we're not under the law but under grace, that now it's okay for us to lie? Uh, how about stealing? That's one of the Ten Commandments, or, or let's keep going. How about committing adultery uh, or committing murder? Now, that's an extreme case, but, but if your good standing before God is based solely on what Jesus did for you, which is grace, and not on law or you keeping certain rules or regulations or laws, uh, then what's to say that you can't believe in Jesus and do drugs, or you can't believe in Jesus and look at pornography, or you can't believe in Jesus and... Uh cut some corners morally or ethically every now and then. See, if it's all about grace and we're not under law, then does that mean that there are no rules and we just do whatever we want? These are the questions. This is the dilemma that is being addressed here in Romans chapter 6. And it's stated here in verse 15 as we begin our text. He states this question, this dilemma that people would come up with. And here's what he says. He says, what then? What then? What should, should we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Let me give you a little bit of background uh, before we go on. The book of Romans is a letter which Paul the Apostle wrote to Christians who were living in the city of Rome. Now, Paul had never been to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome. He even told them that in this letter. I've wanted to go there for a really long time because he, uh, he was very excited when he heard that Christianity Had spread to Rome. Rome was the largest city in the world, over one million people. And you imagine they didn't have skyscrapers. Imagine a city of one million people without skyscrapers. People from all over the world were coming to this city. It was really the epicenter of the world at that time. And Paul understood the strategic importance of this city. He understood that if there was a strong Christian presence in Rome, that it it would have the potential to reach people from literally all over the world, and Paul had wanted to go there for a long time. He had wanted to help build this church in Rome and, and strengthen Christianity in Rome, but he had never had the opportunity. But then one day, he had an idea. He was sitting in Corinth, where he was at the time, and he had an idea, an idea which ultimately was inspired by God. He said, well, what if I wrote them a letter? see, Paul had written other letters before this, but he had never written a letter like this. This one would be different. In this letter, Paul would go into detail. He would explain Christianity. He would go into detail about what is this thing that we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Why do we need it? How does it save us? And he would answer many of the questions and even some of the objections that people often pose against Christianity. And this letter, the letter to the Romans, he realized, wow, you know what? This has the potential to actually have a greater impact than if I had gotten on a boat and just gone over there for a few weeks. Because this letter, it's going to be read, it's going to be distributed, it's going to be duplicated, and it could have an incredible reach all over the world and for generations to come. And so Paul, you can imagine, he sat down, he picked up his pen, and as he did, you can just imagine him praying, God, let these be your words, not my words. And he began to write in his very first sentence, chapter 1, verse 1. How does he begin the letter? He begins with this sentence, Paul A servant, literally a slave. The word he uses there, Greek word doulos. It literally means slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, it's a curious choice of words to call yourself a, a servant or a doulos, right? A slave. Because the city of Rome had a disproportionately large number of slaves. The citizens of Rome, there were a million people who lived in the city of Rome, and somewhere between 30 and 40% of the population were slaves. That's 300 to 400,000 slaves. Can you imagine that? 30 to 40%. Every third or fourth person you meet on the street is a slave. In the rest of the Roman Empire, the numbers weren't like that. And the rest of the empire is around 10%. It was around the number of uh, the proportion of slaves in the empire. But in Rome, that number was way expanded. 30 to 40%. Now, the reason was because slavery in the ancient world worked differently than slavery like we had it in North America. For example, slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't based on race. That's one difference. Furthermore, unlike the slave trade in the Americas, where people, right, they were kidnapped, they were taken forcibly and forced into slavery, in the ancient world, slavery was a bit different. It was something that people would often opt into of their own volition willingly. They would choose it, and and they would enter into it willingly. Now, you might ask, why would anyone offer to be a slave? Like, why would anybody sign up for that? Uh, And the answer is Poverty. That's really the reason. At that time when there's no social net, right, no, no subsidized housing and welfare and Medicaid and all of these programs that we have to take care of the poor in our society, they didn't have that. And so slavery was the way to get out of poverty. That was how you got out of poverty. And that's why there were a disproportionately large number of slaves in Rome because people would come from all over the empire to the big city to try to get out of poverty and escape poverty. And one of the main ways to do that was by coming to town and offering yourself as a slave. And at least that way you knew that your basic needs would be cared for and taken care of. You'd have a roof over your head, you'd have food to eat, and maybe you'd even get a wage. And so Paul, he introduced himself as a slave slave of Christ Jesus. Now, again, that's still curious wording, isn't it, right? Like, like some of us look at that and we say, that's kind of weird. Why would he call himself a slave? It sounds so negative and pejorative and demeaning to call yourself a slave of Christ Jesus. Why wouldn't he instead introduce himself as a friend of Christ Jesus? Or why wouldn't he even just go so simply as to say a follower of Christ Jesus, especially in light of the things that Jesus himself said? So, so consider some of the things that Jesus said. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, we see that at the last suburb, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to them, no longer do I call you servants, doulos, slaves. We just see in English, we, we often translate it servants because the word slave has so much baggage in the English language. So he says, no longer do I call you my servants or my slaves, but now I call you my My friends. So here's Jesus saying, I'm not going to call you my servants, my slaves anymore. Now I'm going to call you my friends. Or how about in John chapter 8, where Jesus says this if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So here we have Jesus saying that He came to set us free, and that He no longer calls us servants, but instead He calls us friends, and yet Paul the Apostle calls himself a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, why would he do that? Now, the reason is what we're going to be looking at today, because Paul understood something about life that he wanted to share with us. It's very important. He wanted the people of Rome and everybody else who would read this letter after him to understand this very important principle. And uh, here in the second half of Romans chapter 6, he explains what that is. The title of today's message is How to Be a Slave. And there are three big things that we learn from this section. Number one, Everybody serves something. Everybody serves something. Number two, why freedom from God leads to bondage. And number three, why being a slave to God is the key to freedom. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to work through those uh, now as we go. So uh, number one, everybody serves something. So we see this in verses 16 and verse 19 in particular. In response to the question he asked in verse 15, should we sin since we're not under the law, but now we're under grace? Paul's emphatic response is, absolutely not. Like, are you kidding me? Like, get the heck out of here. Like, no way. And Paul says here in verse 16, he says, why? Here's why. Because do you not know that if you present yourselves to something as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In other words, here's what he's saying. Being saved doesn't mean that you're free from having a master. Everybody is mastered by something. The question is, what or who will you be mastered by? Everybody is mastered by something. The question is, what or who will you be mastered by? And here's, here's the big point. You can either be a slave to sin or a servant of God. You can't be neither, and you can't be both. So you can either be a slave to sin or a servant of God. You can't be neither, and you can't be both. And for the rest of this section, Paul is going to show us that there are two masters and that all of humanity is either serving one or the other. So check it out. Verse 16, he says, either we will be slaves to sin or slaves of obedience. In verses 17 and 18, he says, you will either be slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Verse 20 to 22, we will either be slaves to sin or slaves to God. There's an author named Rebecca Pippert, and she put it this way. This is very succinct and very accurate. She says, Whatever controls us is our Lord. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by their pursuit of other people's acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by whatever is the Lord of our lives. So Paul goes on in verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms. In other words, this is an analogy He says, because of your natural limitations, for for just as you once presented your members, presented your bodies as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. What he's saying is that whatever you offer yourself to, whatever you surrender yourself to, whatever you submit yourself to, that thing becomes your master and you become its slave or its servant. For example, if I always obey my appetite if my appetite says, do this, and I say, okay, see, I'm always submitting to my appetite. In other words, my appetite is my master, and I am its servant or its slave. Likewise, if you surrender to God, then he is your master. He is the one who gives direction to every area of your lives. He is the one who dictates how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you do with your life. On the other hand, if you surrender yourself to anything else, that thing will be your master. And here's the big point. You will be a slave to that thing, whatever it is. And here's what this is telling us. You can either be a slave to sin or a servant of God. You can't be neither, and you can't be both. And and the point of all this is to say this. As people who are not under the law, but who are under grace, here's why holiness matters, right? Here's why we shouldn't sin. It's not because we have to earn God's love and acceptance. It's not because we have to maintain this state of forgiveness and maintain this state of God's love by by doing it and earning it. No, it's because, here's why, because whatever you surrender to, whatever you surrender yourself to, that thing will be your master. So we need to think very carefully about what masters we want to have, what masters we want to serve, and what we want to be a slave to. So that brings us to our second point, which is this, why freedom from God leads to bondage. Freedom from God leads to bondage, and this is in verses 20 and 21. Notice what he said at the end of verse 16. He says, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, and that's the key, sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Notice notice again, what does sin lead to? He says death. He says the same thing down in verses 20 and 21. When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what was the fruit that you got at that time from the things which you are now ashamed of? He says the end of those things is death. See, this is the complexity of life. The reality is there are a lot of freedoms out there. There are a lot of freedoms that that we can exercise. But some of those freedoms will benefit you and some of those freedoms will harm you. See, we live in a society that loves freedom. I mean, we love it. We live in America, the land of the free, the home of the brave. We celebrate independence and freedom. And we don't take very kindly to people telling us what we have to do or what we're not allowed to do. But the truth is that some freedoms hurt you. Some freedoms hurt you. And some constraints help you. Right? Some freedoms hurt you rather than help you. And some constraints help you. And so what these verses are telling us is this, that if you don't want God to be your master, you can have that freedom. But the fruit of that, the result of that will not be life and joy and thriving. The result of that will be bondage and enslavement and death. See, there are a lot of kind of freedoms out there. There are a lot of ways to exercise freedom, but not all freedoms are equally good, right? So we have to decide which freedoms are most important, which freedoms are are good and good for us. We, We have to consider which freedoms will hurt us and which constraints will help us. So for example, imagine a man in his 60s. And his two favorite activities in life are eating rich foods and playing with his grandchildren. But then he goes to the doctor one day for a checkup, and the doctor says, look, unless you change the way that you eat, like right now, you're going to die. So here's the deal. If you want to stick around and be able to play with your grandkids, then you have to completely stop eating all of your favorite foods. So what's this man going to do? There are two things that he loves to do. There are two freedoms that are in conflict with each other. If he continues to exercise freedom in his diet and the way that he eats and eats whatever he wants, then he will lose the freedom to play with his grandkids for years to come or to watch them grow up. See, this is the complexity of real life. One, One of these freedoms is going to hurt him and one of them is going to help him. One of these freedoms, the freedom to eat whatever he wants, is actually Hurting him, it's destroying him, but the diet, a constraint, will actually help him. And so the question is which freedom do you choose? And which constraint will actually liberate you and set you free so that you'll be truly free the most important and and in the most important ways and the most life giving ways? See, the paradox of freedom that Paul's talking about here in chapter 6 is this if you seek freedom from God, it will lead to bondage and ultimately to death. But the only way to be truly free and to have life to its fullest is by submitting yourself to God. And see, all of us are living for something. All of us are living for something. You're living for something. I'm living for something. The question is, what are we living for, right? So some of us are living for our career or our family. Some of us are just living for ourselves. And whatever you're doing, though, here's the thing. That thing has mastery over you. It has dictates on your life, whether you consider yourself religious or not. Everybody worships something. See, whatever it is that you're living for, in essence, you are worshiping that thing. And this is what it's telling us. Anything that we worship other than God will eventually hurt you and ultimately destroy you. Anything you worship other than God will eventually hurt you and will ultimately destroy you. There's a man named David Foster Wallace. Some of you might remember him. He was a, a famous uh, award-winning, best-selling author in the 90s and 2000s, and he really got to the top of his profession. He achieved great success professionally. And a few years before he died, he was invited to give the commencement speech at Kenyon College, which is a, an elite liberal arts school in Ohio. And so here's what he said during that commencement speech. He was telling these people, look, as you go out into life, here's what he said, as you go out into life, you get to choose what to worship. You get to choose what to worship. And he said, because here's the thing, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. He said, it's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He said, look, the insidious things about these, th- these forms of worship is that they're unconscious." They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day without being fully aware that that's what you're doing. See, David Foster Wallace, actually, he was not a Christian. He was not a religious person at all. He's an agnostic. But what he said in that speech was profoundly true, and it is exactly what the Bible is saying to us here in Romans chapter 6. And sadly, a few years after he gave that speech, David Foster Wallace said, killed himself. He was a man who had achieved everything. He was smart. He was rich. He was famous. But like he himself said, those haunting words, almost like his last words, give us some insight into what was happening in his own mind. If you worship anything other than God, it will eat you alive. So we began with this question, right? If we're not under the law, but under grace— then what's to stop us from sinning? Like, what motivation do we have? If our status before God is based on what Jesus did and not on what we do, then what motivation do we have at all to resist temptation or to live a godly life or to obey God's commandments? And the answer is found here in chapter 6. Paul says, look, here's the deal. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden, right? A lot of people are like, I shouldn't do that because it's sin, and the reason it's sin, in other words, the reason it's bad is because it's against the rules. No, think about it this way. Flip that script, right? Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. And conversely, what that, what that also means is this. Holiness leads to happiness, Holiness leads to happiness. So when God says, I want to make, I want to be the Lord of your life. I want you to be holy. I want you to not sin. I want you to obey my commandments. The reason he says those things is not because he's on some kind of power trip, right? Like he's, he's this control freak in the sky who doesn't want you to have any fun down here. No. It's because he absolutely loves you and he wants what's best for you. So in other words, the reason you shouldn't sin is not because you're afraid that God will reject you if you do and that he won't love you anymore, or he won't bless you anymore if you do. No. Here's the reason you shouldn't sin. Because sin will wreck you. It will destroy you. Right? In verse 16 and 21, here's what he says. He says, here's what it does. You want to know what sin does? It leads to shame, it leads to bondage, and ultimately it leads to death. So does a Christian have to obey, obey the Ten Commandments? Well, let's put it this way. You don't have to obey the Ten Commandments in order to be saved. But you do have to obey the Ten Commandments if you want to be a truly free person and to experience life to its fullest and to have joy. So let's move on to our third point, and that's this, which is related. Why being a slave to God is actually the key to freedom. Verses 17 and 18 say this, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So we're continuing this analogy of slaves and masters. And here's what this verse tells us. It says that when a person puts their faith in Jesus, there is a transfer of ownership that takes place. There's a transfer of ownership that takes place. So imagine a literal slave. They have an owner someone who owns them as property, but if someone else comes along and purchases that slave, then there's a transfer of ownership from the one owner to the other. In fact, did you know this, that the word redemption, the word redemption, which we see so often in the Bible, when the Bible says that Jesus redeemed us by his blood, that word redeem, it actually comes from the slave trading world. And that word redeem, it means to purchase. To purchase In the ancient world, one of the main reasons, along with, it's part of the, the whole thing of poverty, but along with it, one of the main reasons why someone would end up a slave or offer themselves as a slave was, was not just poverty, but debt. So debt was a huge reason. So if you were in a lot of debt, your debtors would be coming for you, and that's not good. And they had debtors' prisons, which you might know have become illegal throughout the world, like the UN forbids debtors' prisons because it's so inhumane. Because once you're in one, how are you ever going to get out? And so there were debtors' prisons. Debtors would come come coming for you. It was a bad deal to be in debt. So one way you could get out of debt was to sell yourself into slavery. So let's say you had $100,000 in debt. You would sell yourself to some wealthy person, and you would say, look, I have $100,000 in debt. If you will pay off my debt, then I, in exchange, will be your slave for 10 years, let's say, or, or some number of years. Now, if someone else then came along and said, hey, you have this slave, you know, you paid his debt. Well, well, I want to purchase that slave, so what I'm going to do is essentially, I'm going to buy his debt, and that person will be a slave to me. So there's some correlation even like with what credit card companies do today, right? Like they buy other debt. And so that's what the Bible says in First in Corinthians chapter 6. It says, don't you know that you are not your own? You were bought with a price you were bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. See, that's the message of the gospel. You were born a slave. You were born into this. Like, you didn't choose the thug life. The thug life chose you, right? Like, you were born into sin. It was your master. And, and Jesus came, and he, and he looked at you and said, I want him, or I want her. What's the price? I'll pay it. How much does it cost for me to redeem that person? But here's the deal. Your debt your sin, it wasn't $100,000. It was, it was so great. The price of redemption was so high that nothing less than the death of God himself was sufficient to pay the price. And here's the incredible thing, that God loves you so much that he was willing to do that for you. He was willing to pay that price for you, and he did in Christ, on the cross, he redeemed you by his blood, his life given for you as a ransom to pay your debt and make you his own. So when you really embrace that, when you understand the gospel and you embrace what Jesus did for you, when you receive that gift of redemption, verses 17 and 18 tell us, here's what happens. There's a transfer that takes place, a transfer of ownership. You used to have an old master, now you have a new master. Your old master was sin, and now you have a new master. God is your master. He's your Lord, and that's why it says in verse 22, now you've been set free from sin and you have become slaves to God. And here's what it says is the result of this in verse 22, the fruit that leads to sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. In other words, the, the result of you belonging to God and living and serving Him, this is the result, fruit that leads to sanctification and eternal life. See, here's the paradox of freedom. Autonomy from God leads to bondage, but the way to be truly free is to make God your Lord. Verse 23 sums this up. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's bring us back to that question. Why shouldn't we sin? Like, why shouldn't we? If it's all grace, if there's forgiveness, then what's the big deal? Here's the big deal about sin. In other words, here's what he's saying. Sin is a big deal because it leads to shame, bondage, and ultimately death. That's why sin's a big deal. Those things used to master us, but now we've been redeemed in Jesus, and we have a new master. So why would you go back to the old master? It doesn't make any sense. Imagine if you had a new job, but then at your lunch hour, right, you show up for work to your new job, but then at lunch you say, I'm going to go see what those other guys are up to, right? And so you go back to your old job and you walk into your old boss's office and you say, hey, boss, uh, I'm here. Do you got any work for me to do? And he's like, well, of course I have work for you to do. And he puts you right to work. Why would you do that? What are you doing there? You don't belong there. You don't work there anymore. You have a new boss, a new Lord, a new master. You don't work. Why would you go back to work for your old boss? See, notice something he says in verse 19. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Notice that phrase, lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. And he contrasts that with the idea of righteousness leading to sanctification. This is the idea of what you might call spiritual momentum. Spiritual momentum, it speaks about the dynamic power of our habits, so spiritual momentum and the power of habits, this is speaking of choosing the right activities which build this momentum that help you move in a particular direction. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul talks about this same principle, and there he refers to it in different terms. He calls it sowing to the spirit and sowing to the flesh. That's kind of a farming or gardening metaphor. Here's the picture, that, that everything that you do, is like planting a seed. Everything that you do, every way that you spend your day, everything that you choose to do, it's like you're planting a seed. And when you plant that seed, it's like when you're gardening, right? You plant a seed in the ground, you don't see the results right away. It might be a while, but here's the thing. You keep planting seeds, and eventually, you're going to see something result from those seeds. Something will be produced. And here's what he's saying. Think seriously about the seeds that you're planting with the choices that you make and the ways that you spend your time. And here's what I want to point out to you. There's a difference between legalism and wisdom. So we preached a ton here about against legalism. Like, legalism's bad, don't do that. But I want you to know this. There's a difference between legalism and wisdom. There's a difference between legalism and devotion. See, there's a difference between legalism, and Paul describes that here in verse 19, where he says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, to sanctification, which ultimately leads to life and to joy. See, legalism is when you are trying to do things in order to garner God's favor, in order to get God's attention or earn his acceptance. It's like, you see, legalism is when you say, you play, let's make a deal with God, right? Like, okay, God, here's the deal. I'm going to read my Bible every day, even the boring parts, for a week, And I know that you're going to see that. And then, you know, this thing I've been asking you for, I mean, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch my back, we got a deal. And legalism is, let's make a deal with God. Okay, I'll go to church every week, like for five weeks in a row. And then you'll see that, and then you'll give me something in return. See, that's legalism. But wisdom is something different. Devotion is not the same as legalism. So you can do the same exact action. See, here's what's tricky about it. You can do the same exact action outwardly for a legalistic reason, or from a heart of wisdom and devotion to God. Now, a person from the outside might not be able to tell why you're doing that, but God sees your heart, and you know that. And so, so you can do the same exact action for a legalistic reason, or for from a heart of uh, wisdom and devotion. So for example, you could say, I'm gonna go to church every Sunday because if I do, I'll score some points with the big guy upstairs. Or you can say in your heart, I'm gonna go to church every Sunday because it's good for my soul because I wanna set aside time for worship and fellowship and studying God's word with God's people and I wanna sow to the spirit because I don't want to be a slave to my entertainment mentality. I don't want to be a slave to self. I don't want to be a slave to recreation. I want to be a slave to righteousness. You can say, well, I'm going to give financially, and I'm going to tithe because if I do that, then God will owe me. Like, he'll owe me if I scratch his back, he'll scratch my back. That's legalism. But on the other hand, you can say, well, I'm going to give financially, and I'm going to tithe because God says that it's important for my own health, for my well-being, for me to be investing in his work and prioritizing his kingdom, not just with my time, but even in how I spend my money because I don't want to be a slave To money and things. I don't want to be a slave to my own possessions. I want to be a slave to God. I want to be a slave to righteousness. See, as we do these things, what we're doing is we're training ourselves to be slaves of righteousness rather than slaves to sin. It's that idea of spiritual momentum getting us moving in a particular direction. And the result will be true freedom, greater fulfillment, a richer life, and more joy. See, we're not under the law. We're under grace. But because of this incredible grace of God that has redeemed us, it would be absolutely ridiculous for us to go back to our old masters and serve them once again. When we really understand who Jesus is and what he's done, the only logical response is for us to serve him. There's nothing legalistic about that. See, everybody's mastered by something. The freedom you have is in choosing what or who you will be mastered by. And the only way to be truly free is to use your freedom to become a servant of God. Now come with me back as we finish to the gospel of John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking to a group of people, a group of Jewish people, and he says to them, if you abide in my word, and you, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But look at what they respond. They say, hey, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Like, how is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus shows up and he says, guys, I am gonna set you free. And they are like, wait a second. We don't need you to set us free. We're doing just fine, thank you. And Jesus says, Are you? Because I promise you, you're a slave to something. You're a slave to your pride. You're a slave to success. You're a slave to the American dream. You're a slave to lust. You're a slave to what other people think about you. And all those things have mastery over your life, and they will crush you ultimately if you are their slave. But Jesus says, but I've come to set you free. I've come to give you life. And yet, here's Paul the Apostle. He sits down to write the letter to the Romans, and how does he begin? How does he introduce himself? Paul, big-time missionary, writer of several books of the Bible. No, I need something a little more subtle, he says. Okay, Paul, you know, uh, I saw Jesus on this road. No, he says, no, here's what I'll write. Paul, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. And then, then Peter, when he writes one of his letters, what does he say? Peter, You know, one time I walked on water. No, he says, Peter, a slave of Jesus Christ. Then James and Jude, they write the same things. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. People who read that must have been like, wait a second, didn't Jesus say that he doesn't call us his servants anymore? Now he calls us his friends. Didn't Jesus come to give us freedom? So why would you call yourself a servant or a slave? There's an interesting law. In the Old Testament, it's found in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, and it's about the law of slavery. And the law in, in, the, in Israel was actually much better than the laws about slavery in the surrounding countries. The law was that if a person was you know, p- poor or they were in debt and they needed a way to get out, then you could take them as your slave, but you could only hold a person as your slave for seven years. At the end of seven years, you had to set them free. But there was one exception, and, and this is that. If at the end of that seven-year period, that slave says, but I don't want to leave. I like it here. My master is good to me. He's a good master, and and he's treated me well. Life here is better for me than life is going to be on the outside. I want to stay here. Then what that person could do is they could become a slave by choice, a slave by choice, and there would be a ceremony, right? They would take him, and they would pierce his ear, and from that day on, that person would be a slave For the rest of their life, a slave to that master forever for the rest of their life. And they had done so by choice. And for Paul and for Peter and for James and for Jude, this is what it means to be a Christian. That picture, that's what the word is bondservant. It's a slave by choice. It means you use the freedom that you've been given in Christ and you say, I want to use my freedom to serve him forever because he's been so good to me. You say, because I remember, Lord. I remember what you saved me from. I know what life was like on the outside, and I don't want to go back to that, because it's bondage. Man, There's if if there's something else, there's nothing else, really, that I'd rather do with my life. There's nothing that I could ever imagine wanting to do with my life that would be so meaningful and so fulfilling and so life-giving other than serving you for all of my days. You see, when you really understand the message of grace, that Jesus paid your debt and set you free, that he loves you, that he offers you a relationship with him. And in that case, what, what he, it causes you to do, it causes you to take the freedom that you've been given and to respond and say, because of all you've done for me, there's nothing I want more than to serve you. And when you give your life to him who gave his life for you, that's when you will experience true joy, true fulfillment, true freedom, both now and forevermore. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this incredible freedom that you have given us in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this good news of the gospel. We're not under the law. Our relationship with you isn't based on our performance. We're not needing to make a deal with you so that you'll love us and answer our prayers and forgive us and accept us. But Lord, thank you that in response to your grace, Lord, not only have you set us free, but you've given us the way of freedom. So Lord, may we uh, look to you and make you our Lord. I pray for anybody here today who says, you know what, I I don't think I've ever really done that. I don't think I'm in that place right now where I've asked Jesus to not just be my Savior, but to be my Lord. Lord, I I pray for anybody here who would say that today, that they wouldn't leave this building without saying that prayer to you uh, as we sing this last song. Lord, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Lord for real, not just as a title, but as the actual role in my life. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.